One of the ironies of the Scottish independence movement is that it is only possible thanks to the success of Scottish unionism over the last 300 years. With all of Europe hypnotised by the Euro Football Championship, the Scots had their eyes set for their derby match against the English. Unlike their neighbours down south, Scottish fans are not delusional enough to believe that their team could go all the way and win the championship, but snatching a nil-nil draw from their neighbours was all the Scots needed to come back north with a smile on their faces. A far cry from the fierce battles of Bannockburn and Culloden, where Scots and English slaughtered each other, these sporting rivalries remind us nonetheless that in many ways, the Scots remain a distinct nation. Back in 2014, the Scots even held a referendum on independence from the United Kingdom, which was rejected by 55.3% of the voters. But since 2014, the United Kingdom has gone through its own political revolution, leaving the European Union at the dismay of the stringently pro-European Scots. Seven years and two prime ministers later, the ruling Scottish National Party is calling for an Indy Ref 2, a second referendum on Scotland's membership in the United Kingdom. Will the tides of history inevitably lead to a Scottish independence? To make the case for and against an independent Scotland, we have with us two flying Scotsmen who know the history of the Anglo-Scottish Union by heart and follow the political manoeuvring in both Westminster and Holyrood. But before we go on, if you trust us enough to come back every week, don't forget you can really help the show continue to grow by sharing it with a friend or writing a review. Take a minute now to do it or I'll haunt your dreams with my worst imitations of a Scottish accent. And trust me, you do not want to hear that. We're so very glad to have with us to talk about this issue, Alex Massey. Alex, you're the columnist for The Times and The Sunday Times, as well as Scotland editor of The Spectator. We have another side, Ben Jackson. Ben Jackson, you're the Associate Professor of History at Oxford University, and the author of A Case for Scottish Independence, which you released in 2019. And we were laughing um, beforehand about how you thought you had missed your big opportunity to talk about it back in the 2014 referendum. But it seems this issue does not die after all. And before we begin, let's go with the very basics. How did Scotland came to be part of the Union? Um, and how does this history, uh, how does this history play on the way uh, the Scots feel about the Union? And was there even maybe a kind of reinvention of tradition moment in the past decades, which helped to recreate a distinct Scottish national sentiment? Ben, you're the real expert on this topic. So walk us through from the act of the Union in 1707 to today. How does kind of the mythology of Scottish independence play uh, on the Scots. Okay, so there's uh, that's potentially a lot of history to fit in, but I'll try and give you a very abbreviated version. So if we go back to 1707, which is when you have the union between the, the, the Scottish Parliament and the, the English-Welsh Parliament, 
um, to form the, the new nation of, of Great Britain. That, that's the kind of founding moment of, of this uh, you know, new state that's created out of previously independent states. Uh, and the, the union is a, essentially a bargain between two national elites. The, the English side is, is concerned about national security, about its, its borders, safeguarding a Protestant monarchy, uh, whereas on the on the Scot Scottish side, they they see the union as being about improving the economic position of of, of Scotland, and I, I suppose in, in in more prudentially kind of averting a more kind of full scale uh, co coercive English takeover of of Scotland. So the, the kind of crucial point about the union is it's legitimated as a voluntary act that's undertaken for mutual self-interest. It's not an act of colonisation or or military coercion, and and the the kind of founding ideology of the union on the Scottish side is that it preserves the distinctive character of Scottish society. It, it preserves the, the uh, distinctive religious life, educational system, legal system, various institutional aspects of, of Scottish society that are, that are different from, from England. So that's the kind of founding moment. And what you can see from that, I guess, is that it's not a sort of easy historical narrative for nationalists, because it's this act of, of, of bargaining between between elites. It's not it's not a kind of act of coercive takeover. And if you can fast forward from 1707 to the late 20th century, what, what you see when you get there is that Scotland has been fairly successfully integrated economically and politically and with the rest of the United Kingdom. It's, it's benefited from industrialization, from the economic boom. Scotland has been a, 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 a sort of partner in the a project of the British Empire across the 19th century. Um, so, so in many ways, Scotland, Scotland is very well integrated by the late 19th century. But from about the 1970s onwards, you start to get the rise of a, 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 more, a, a more popular form of separatist nationalism in the form of the Scottish National Party um, that, that is seeking independence. And, and in response to that, you, you get the, the other parties who favour the the remaining part of the United Kingdom uh, advocating for a, a, a sort of halfway house between independence and, and the status quo, which is devolution and the creation of a Scottish Parliament, and particularly the Labour Party starts to adopt that. And I guess in terms of the reinvention of tradition, what, what, what you see in the 70s and particularly in the 80s is a kind of vision of Scottish political identity is created as a, as a sort of left-leaning nationalist sort of almost laborist political culture. And so the argument becomes Scottish democratic autonomy is necessary in order to fend off uh, you know, deindustrialization, Thatcherism, neoliberalism, all of, all of those sorts of things. And, and so that's the kind of framing in which Scottish nationalism takes shape in the, across the, the 80s and 90s. Alex? Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies of the Scottish independence movement is that it is only possible thanks to the success of Scottish unionism over the last 300 years, because one of the key uh, ambitions, and Ben t touches, touched on this a moment ago, uh, one of the key ambitions of Scottish unionism uh, ever since 1707 has been to preserve that idea of Scotland as a distinct place, a distinct nation within a larger nation. Um, and had that not uh, been successful, had that ambition not been, uh, you know, had, the, had unionists not succeeded in that, you know, nationalism would have a very much more difficult task to, to, if you like, recreate the idea of Scotland and the potential of Scotland to be an independent country. Um, uh, and what I would also then argue is, is one of the further ironies of the current moment or of the last 50 years, actually, is that the 
case for independence has been strengthened by the fact that in many respects, Scotland and England have never been more alike. Uh, there are certain issues where there are differences of opinion. I mean, the European question is is obviously one, although there, in part, Scottish enthusiasm for the European Union uh, is perhaps related to English scepticism of the European Union. And so it becomes another way of um, I, defining a degree of difference, of insisting upon difference. Uh, but that, ins that, that difference is insisted upon because in so many other respects, we are so alike. And a visitor from a distant galaxy might look at this small island and think, well, these people are so alike and the geography of the place is, 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 is what it is, that it makes sense for them all to be part of one country. Um, uh, you know, um, and it's precisely because of that that, that we have a, a, a more energised sense of Scottish identity that expresses itself in, in many different ways. Um, but it is consistent with the traditions of, of Scottish unionism as well, because, you know, unionism in Scotland is also a nationalist movement. It just exists on a different part of the spectrum. Narcissism with small differences, if, we, if I may say so. And uh, if, we, if we zero in on, on how uh, the, the full range of these arguments played out in the 2014 referendum, I, I thought it was uh, really interesting what Ben uh, just laid out in terms of the nationalist uh, case being, um, you know, overlapping with a with a sort of a welfareist stance on economics, right? The the idea that Scotland uh, should be given autonomy to handle its economic policies, it's uh, a more redistributive stance on on tax policy that would allow to even out some of the economic inequities that that you see across the whole of the, the UK. And, um, and, and that really kind of sets the Scottish case apart from other regional independence movements. And when you think of Catalonia, for instance, in Spain, and I wonder if you could walk us through how uh, all of these issues played out in 2014 particularly. It seemed like in that referendum, the, the economic case uh, really won the day, right? The idea that uh, a free and independent Scotland would be an impoverished Scotland uh, whose access to the EU would not be guaranteed. It would be probably even be vetoed by countries such as the UK and Spain. So walk us through how uh, all of these arguments played out back then. Yeah, so I think you're, you're right that in, in, in 2014, it was uh, risk aversion that, that, that won the day in, in the referendum in the sense that, that people who voted uh, to, to remain in the UK were persuaded by these arguments about uh, how difficult the economic transition would be to a new state, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the fact that there wouldn't be as high a level of public spending as, as there is un, under the union, the questions about what the currency is going to be in the independence debate. There are all these kind of detailed and really important questions about how an independent Scotland would work that the, the pro-union side pressed on very hard during the campaign. And that was... In, enough to, to win, and then on the on the on the kind of pro independence side, they were trying to sell uh, the more uh, as they saw it kind of op optimistic vision of creating a new nation that would be uh, left of centre, that would be able to to pursue many of these social and economic policy objectives that that, that they they argued was was blocked uh, by a, having a right wing UK government, and and so that was kind of how the argument. Um, was prosecuted, and and I guess what what you know what what seemed striking at the at the time, and I think also in, in retrospect, is the way that the the pro union side focused very heavily on these these economic arguments, which were clearly very effective, but also found it slightly difficult to come up with a bigger story that had a had a had a, a sort of grander emotional resonance about what the United Kingdom meant and why it was important to be part of it, and and on the other side, on the pro independence side. 
you know, they they had the sort of emotional resonance, the kind of idea of democracy and democratic sovereignty, but they, they found it a, a lot harder to grapple with these detailed technical questions about what an independent state would, would look like. And so there was that kind of asymmetry in the argument. I, I, I suppose what you would say about 2014 is that it ended up being a bit a bit closer than people on the union side thought thought it was going to be, and in that sense, it was a chastening experience for the for the pro union side that 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 it was expected when 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 the referendum was was agreed that it would be a relatively comfortable victory for the pro union side, and and I think that that was something that caused a bit of or still causing a bit of self you know self reflection and angst on the union side about how how to go about presenting the case for the union in those more positive terms. And, and turning to you, Alex, I, it was it was so interesting just a minute ago how you were um, uh, taking a more relative view of the differences, even in, in terms of the political worldview of these two um, member nations of the UK. And you know, if, as you were saying, if a member of a foreign galaxy came in, the the uh, they wouldn't really notice uh, them as much as as people within these uh, two nations do. And uh, do you think that was confirmed by the, the 2014 referendum? Yes, in certain respects. I mean, the 2014, you you know, roughly speaking, the electorate was divided into three portions. You had at least 30% who were always going to vote no, uh, because they feel Scottish and British. Um, you had at least 30% who were always going to, to vote yes, because they feel Scottish, not British. And then you had the sort of 30% in the middle who could have gone either way. And so the Better Together campaign, the pro-union campaign, focused exclusively on those 30%. And they discovered that, that, that the middle Scotland, if you like, was utterly uninterested in poetic uh, hymns to the glories of Britishness and uh, Scotland's place within the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom's place in in the world. They wanted to to be persuaded on on matters of of, of basically uh, economics and risk, uh, and they didn't believe that an independent Scotland would necessarily deliver on the promises made by it uh, made for it by the Yes campaign, and that all things considered, um, uh, the safer, more prudential option was to remain part of the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, you know, and there was a degree of truth to that. I think um, you know nobody sensible, even on the pro-union side, says that Scotland couldn't be independent. Merely that it would begin uh, its life as an independent country as a less prosperous place than would otherwise be the case. Against that, obviously, the democratic argument for independence, that the decisions that affect the people of Scotland should be made wherever possible in Scotland, is obviously you know, both simple and, in, to a certain degree, persuasive. Um, there is, of course, then a further irony here, that it is exactly the same argument that was made for Brexit. Um, and in many respects, the Brexit campaign was uh, the dynamics and arguments made in the uh, Brexit referendum campaign in 2016 were a bigger version, if you like, of many of the same arguments that were made uh, in 2014, with the difference being that the revolutionaries won in 2016, whereas they were defeated in 2014. Um, but, you know, I remember looking back in, in, in to 2014, you know, uh, I mean, Ben referenced the complacency on the, the pro union side, and that was absolutely true. Um, it was true in London anyway. It was less true in, in Scotland. Um, it was, you know, it always seemed absolutely obvious to me that the pro-independence argument would win at least 40% of the vote. Because there has always been a sense in Scotland of, uh, well, if all things were equal, 
then of course an independent Scotland would be a lovely idea, an attractive idea, a compelling idea even. But the question is, when do all things become equal? And the challenge for the yes movement then and now actually is to persuade Scots that all things are actually equal. Um, uh, and what we've seen post-Brexit is some move towards that, frankly, because Brexit has changed uh, the game. It has changed the rules of engagement and it has reminded us that economics do not always trump culture. Thank, thank you so much for the segue, Alex. We were uh, meaning to, to, to get into Brexit just now, and, and uh, I'll turn to Ben here for, for his own take on how Brexit has sort of upended the, the case of you know, unionism versus nationalism. It seems like you know, there was that paradox between uh, you know, the, the, the Scottish nationalists uh, wanting to, um, to re reclaim some sovereignty from the union and being able to, to direct the, 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 the policy and economic arsenal uh, of Scotland towards a more, uh, in a more welfareist direction, but that uh, that also included their their attachment to the EU, which demands uh, some uh, some uh, delegation of power. Uh, and so the, the the paradox was was that was I guess um, was I guess center uh, center place in the referendum. And how uh, can you walk us through Ben how uh, the um, later result of the Brexit referendum across the UK has uh, reformulated the, the Scottish question in in, in Scotland and, and how you see it. Yes, well, one, one, one of the arguments that was made during the 2014 independence referendum was on, on, on the union side was that it would be very uncertain what would happen to an independent Scotland in terms of its EU membership. And, and so the argument that was made by the pro-union side was that you have to stay in the union to stay in the EU. And, and so obviously the results of the Brexit referendum undermined that, that part of the, the pro-union case. Uh, and so that's that, that, that the kind of argument that the, the Scottish nationalists make is that, you know, it's time to kind of put the case again because the circumstances have changed since the last time that we had this, this argument. I mean, the, the, the Scottish National Party has a kind of checkered history with, with European integration. It was quite a Eurosceptic party in, initially in the, the 70s, but in the, in the 80s and 90s, it pivoted towards a much more pro-EU position. And uh, the, you know, a big part of that reason was a kind of instrumental one, which is that they thought it would be uh, kind of independence would be an easier sell uh, if you could make the case that that post-independence, both both Scotland and the rest of the UK would be part of the EU, would still be part of the, the single market. You wouldn't need border posts between the country. There would still be a high degree of economic integration. And I guess less, maybe slightly less instrumentally, they, they were also quite struck by the, the experience of Ireland and the sort of sense that the EU provides a framework within which small states can can sort of punch above their weight and enjoy an equality of status with, with larger states as, as members of the EU. So all of that means that the, the, the Scottish nationalists take a very pro-EU stance and, have, and have, as Alex was saying, have kind of dragged in some votes, as far as we can tell, from people who voted to remain in, in the EU referendum. Uh, but it does pose, the, I mean, the kind of post-Brexit landscape does pose a bit of a problem for the, for the case for Scottish independence in the sense that the 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 the, the uh, supporters of independence now need to come up with uh, a story about what is going to happen economically in terms of uh, international trade if if Scotland is is separate from the rest of the United Kingdom and then joins the EU then these questions about the border and uh, trade across the border and border posts and so on comes back and they haven't really formulated a very clear answer about what what they would do about that some people are you know some some Scottish nationalists have suggested that in fact 
the, the prospectus for independence shouldn't actually be about being in the EU, but but should be about uh, being in EFTA or some other kind of trade trading arrangement. But as far as we can, we can tell, and Alex will know know more about this, it looks like the SNP leadership is pretty much biting the bullet and and saying that no, they think an independent Scotland should should be in the EU, and that means they've then got to answer all these questions about about how how the the um, trading arrangements would work after independence. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. I mean, the, one of the other things, of course, is by the by the European question is that you know the SNP formally commits itself to what it calls independence in Europe at the 1992 general election, Westminster general election, um, and I think that's partly informed, obviously, by the events of 1989, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the reemergence of uh, long buried states across Eastern and Central Europe, uh, is is a moment in history where people in Scotland suddenly think, well, hang on a minute, actually, to a certain extent couldn't some of that apply to us here in Scotland as well and I think that that is something that you know I think it's important to remember that as a as a moment in which independence begins to seem more credible um, uh, but Brexit you know, simplifies the political argument for independence immeasurably. So, you know, England voted out, Scotland voted to remain. Uh, we are being dragged out of the European Union against our will. Uh, we must have the right to revisit the national question and, and choose our own future. We must take back control. Um, uh, but as Ben says, it complicates the practical aspects of independence considerably, because if you accept the SNP's argument that it is an act of economic self-harm, an act of folly for the UK to leave the European Union, it's largest trading partner. It must logically be an act of economic self-harm and economic folly for Scotland to leave the United Kingdom, its largest trading partner, in fact, where 60% of Scottish exports go to the rest of the UK, far more than go to the European Union. Um, uh, you know, the, what is true for the UK vis-a-vis -vis the EU must also be true for Scotland vis-a-vis -vis the UK. Um, and that is a problem that they, the, the nationalists have chosen to ignore thus far um, in the hope that something will turn up to answer it. Um, but if you do have a second referendum, and we are, I think, still a long way from that moment, uh, those are questions, as with questions on currency and certain other practical details, that will have to be answered. Um, because, you know, one of the things Brexit has also demonstrated is that you can't just say it'll be all right on the night. Um, you know, you have to have a proper plan that's, that stands up to serious scrutiny. Um, otherwise, you end up in all kinds of difficulty. And so I think, you know, while on an emotional uh, level, if you like, and on a political level, the case for independence is, is, is quite strong and quite simple right now. At a practical level, the nationalists, the pro-independent side have barely begun to even think about reworking the arguments for the practicalities of life after independence. And that is a problem. And at some point, they're going to have to address that. Hmm. And I, I want to go a little bit through the um, devolution and the way it has played on the case for Scottish independence over the last decade or last two decades, because the, the Tony Blair Scotland Act of devolution in 1998 gave a lot more power to shape Scottish laws by the local government and the parliament. And back then it was seen as a necessary concession to the Scottish desire to have some control over their, their politics uh, and not have Westminster decide for the entire union. But in hindsight, has devolution only whetted the appetite for independence, um, showing the Scots they could do it themselves, or would the case for independence be 
even stronger had it not been for devolution in the first place. Uh, ben. Yeah, it's it, it, it's tricky. I mean, so it's ov- obviously true that the the Scottish Parliament and the 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 kind of history of Scottish electoral politics since the foundation of the Scottish Parliament has has seen the SNP uh, strengthened in, enormously as a party. It's become a party of government. It's built itself now into a, you know a really powerful uh, electoral machine that can that that can count on almost up to fifty percent of the vote in in Scotland. So so clearly, if devolution was intended to uh, you know, kind of uh, put the SNP back in their box. It didn't. It didn't work very well. On the other hand, there was this broader argument for devolution that that was quite widespread, not not just among Scottish nationalists, but among quite a wide section of of Scottish society across the eighties. Which is that there, there was a, a, a big kind of tension had emerged in British democracy in that period because uh, the, the 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 Scottish electorate. W- wasn't voting for the government that was consistently being voted in by by uh, the rest of the UK and by England in, in particular. And the fact that the, the Conservative governments in, in the 80s and, and early 90s didn't have a lot of uh, support in, in Scotland did set up a bit of a democratic deficit. And that was what devolution was responding to, to try and attenuate that that tension. And, you know, I would, I would guess that had in some sort of weird counterfactual scenario in which Labour came to office in 97 and didn't Institute a Scottish Parliament, there would have been, uh, you know, a significant move of, of votes to the SNP. How significant, I don't know, but it would have it would have been seen as a as a betrayal of that that kind of conversation that had been going in the eighties and nineties. I mean, I think maybe what the other kind of counterfactual scenario that is sort of more plausible is, you know, what would have happened had the Scottish Labour Party managed to run a more effective political operation under devolution? Because, sort of looking back, there are these junctures where where you know, it, things didn't have to play out the way they did. I mean, the, the you know, the 2007 Scottish Parliament election that sees the SNP come to power was very close. Maybe a more effective Scottish Labour operation at that point might have nicked that election. The 2011 election where the SNP actually get a majority in a proportional uh, representation parliament, which is not supposed to be possible, uh, you know, that, that had there been a more effective Scottish Labour um, operation then maybe they might have prevented the SNP getting a majority. I mean, there are these you know there are sort of mistakes I think that have been mis- made on the other side that might have taken some of the wind out of the sails of the SNP because we can sort of see in retrospect that when you get to 2014 there was basically a section of um, the the kind of traditional Scottish Labour electorate that if they were presented with a forced choice between do you want independence or do you want more conservative government from London were inclined to choose independence. And, and and that was the kind of big moment in the 2014 referendum that kind of realigned the electorate and 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 sort of undermined that Scottish Labour electoral coalition, and and so in a way, Scott, you know, Scottish Labour wanted to try and, in, in retrospect, prevent that happening, prevent the 2014 uh, referendum happening, uh, and they didn't they didn't manage to do that. And you can look at the example of Wales, where there's also a devolved assembly, and the Welsh Labour Party seem to be more effective at kind of balancing out that sense of having a distinctive Welsh identity but being part of the of the UK. Um, Alex, before you, you respond to this question, um, can you broadly give our, our, our listeners uh, an understanding of how devolution works? Because in the case of COVID, 
Scotland, for example, took a lot of measures very much independently. It felt like Scotland was its own country at, at times. Well, it is, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, that is. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, the United Kingdom is a very unusual country because you know it is it is a nation state itself, obviously, but within it, it contains national, not regional identities, um, uh, and that that distinction between national and regional makes all the difference. Um, uh, you know, pre- pre- prior to the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, there were uh uh you know prior to the establishment of the scottish parliament there was um administrative devolution that is to say you know scottish education scottish health uh the legal system and so on were were all run by um the scottish civil service um you know they they laws that applied in england didn't necessarily apply in scotland what devolution did was create a legislative uh forum for the passing of 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 these laws um uh but devolution was not i mean it's people often make this mistake now and so on devolution was not created by the Labour Party and the Liberal Party to stop the SNP. It was created to stop the Conservatives. It was created to to prevent a repeat of Thatcherism happening in Scotland. Um, So it was a defensive measure just as much as it was a parliament designed to ever do anything. Um, uh, And it's one of the, the curiosities of Scotland is that it is a country that likes to think of itself as being a radical place. But there have been two radical prime ministers in, in the United Kingdom in the last half century, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. And in different ways and for different reasons, Scotland rejected both of them. Um, uh, and then we've had two major constitutional referendums in the last uh, decade uh, on Scottish independence and on Brexit. And in both instances, Scotland voted for the status quo, for the comfort of what was known over the uncertainty of what was not known. So so one of uh, that that sense of devolution not actually being to do anything particularly but being more to stop things being done to Scotland uh, fatally wounded uh, the Labour Party in the early years of devolution it seems to me because you then have Alex Salmond and the Scottish National Party coming along in 2007 as Ben says this was an election that was mighty close you know the SNP won one more seat than Labour um, uh, and you know the whole history of the last 15 years is very different if if that result was flipped the other way around. Um, uh, but the SNP said, well, look, isn't it time we actually did something with this new parliament? And so there was a sense of possibility and freshness that accompanied the nationalists in office, albeit as a minority administration. And people quite liked that minority administration. They thought it deserved a second, a, a further chance in 2011. Um, but the SNP didn't expect to win a majority in 2011. Um, and nobody else expected them to win a majority. And had people expected them to win a majority, I think it is quite possible that plenty of people who were happy to lend the SNP their support would not have done so. Um, And so you have an accidental majority in many respects in 2011. And that then says, well, okay, we better have a a referendum on independence because we have this mandate. Um, But nobody was expecting the SNP to have that mandate. So it's a series of accidents in some respects that that have led us to this prolonged constitutional standoff and crisis for the British state. Makes me think of this quote from uh, Hegel. I think men make history, but they do not know what history they make. Um, that sounds about right for for this case in in, in Scotland. Um, it was a right segue to the question of the electoral system, not just in in, in Scotland but in the UK, because um, what we saw in the past decade or so is the SNP having uh, a large chunk of the seats, just not just in 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 the Scottish Parliament, but also in Westminster. Uh, I think. 
um, some around 80 to 90 percent of the seats in Westminster hold ahead by the SNP, despite having 50 percent of the vote. Um, could it be that the union is paying the price of its first pass for post electoral system? Um, now, as a result of the rise of the SNP and this first pass for post system, there hasn't been any major Scottish figure in the majority, the opposition party, or whatever in government. And when you think historically, there's been always in the union these kind of major political figures. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Ramsay MacDonald in, in the in the early uh, 20th century. Um, I'm thinking of Gordon Brown. Think about all these different politicians who have been so kind of even Gladstone, I think, was, was 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 Scottish, if I remember correctly. All these major politicians which gave Scotland a figure in the union. Now they are all gone. Um, and which means that the UK is largely run by English politicians. Is it possible for the union to build consent um, among its different nations with the current electoral system while we're reaching a point where this system needs to be uh, changed? Um, ben? Uh, yeah, I think there's I think there's a, a lot in that. I mean, I suppose it's a bigger cultural issue in, in British politics, the, the, the kind of winner-takes-all style of the system um so you know one one aspect of it is the electoral system as as you were saying and and i suppose that that plays out in the scottish seats where you see the snp uh sweeping the 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 westminster the scottish westminster seats um it also plays out in in the constitution of the the government the united kingdom government and and the fact that that governments that that have you know maybe kind of high <coughs> high 30% or 40% of the vote get get stonking majorities in the in the house of commons and can have very few checks and balances on on what they can do which is then is experienced for example in in Scotland as being a kind of democratic imposition so I think so. I think it is a big it's a big issue. I mean, I I, I there, there seems very little prospect of that that changing in the near, in the near future because I mean I, I suppose it's a bit like the the kind of question of you know whether the, the Westminster government would agree to holding another uh, you know another another referendum of Scottish independence. They're probably not going to do that because they might lose it. And equally, they're not that keen. Westminster governments are not that keen on changing the electoral system because they're the beneficiaries of the electoral system that puts them in place. But I think it, you know I think I think it definitely is a is a kind of issue. I mean, in, in terms of the way that the the kind of vote splits in Scotland at the moment, I mean, there sort of broadly looks like there's a kind of 50-50 split between uh, supporters of independence and, and supporters of the union, but the union side is is fractured between different parties, between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party and, and Liberal Democrats to a lesser extent, where, where the SNP hoover up most of the votes and, and, and the Scottish Green Party to, to a lesser extent, they, they hoover up the pro-independence votes. So that kind of puts them in a stronger position to win elections, both in the in the Scottish Parliament and, and at Westminster. And, and that kind of fracture in the pro-union side means it's kind of harder for for the pro-union vote to coalesce in the same way, although there was some tactical voting in the most recent Scottish Parliament election that probably um, you know saved some seats. There was some cross-voting um, between Labour and Conservative supporters in favour of pro-union candidates in certain seats, but but broadly there is that kind of fracture in the support for the union as well. But Ben, if you could add a, a few words on on kind of absence of Scottish politicians at the national at the at the union's uh, uh, level. Which, which has always been the case over the past 200 years, in the past decade or so, they're all gone. What does, what does that mean for unionism and, and for Scotland? 
Yeah, it's um, uh, so I think it is it is it is a difference that, that we're now entering an era where it, it seems that there aren't that um, senior Scottish figures in in in, in government uh, representing Scottish seats. I mean, I guess there there are there are still. Uh, Scots that are prominent in in various roles, and, uh, Michael Gove perhaps being the obvious example, but they they don't represent seats in 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 Scotland, um, and so it is a yeah I think it, you know is is another way in which it makes the the government in in London look less in touch with 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 Scotland. I mean I guess there have been periods in the past when there haven't been large numbers of senior. Sort of Scotch, Scottish politicians, and and uh, you know in the <clears throat> the nineteen forties or or nineteen fifties, say it's not always the case that there's been very prominent Scottish figures. Maybe maybe in some ways our, our our memory of this is slightly distorted by the fact that we we had this period in the in the nineties and two thousands when there was this the new Labour government was very heavily. Uh, you know, had a very heavy representation of, of of Scots representing Scottish seats, and and Gordon Brown and Robin Cook and, and so on were very important. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I guess he presents more as kind of culturally English rather than <laughs> Scottish, but yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you know, it may be that where our memory of this is slightly distorted. I mean, I think it is. I, I guess it is. What, what's different is having a party representing Scottish seats. That, that is not contesting elections in the rest of the United Kingdom, but is only contesting elections in Scotland. And so in that sense, it's not integrated into the, the, the kind of bigger British political system. And that does set up a bit of a, a tension, which in some ways politically may play to the advantage of the Conservative Party, because the, the Conservatives have been, at the last um, few general elections, have been quite skillful at kind of portraying the dangers of having uh, SNP representation in, in government in informal coalition with, with Labour. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in, in some ways, the kind of the SNP uh, versus Conservative dynamic suits both parties in, in, some, in some electoral respects. Well, completely. Um, you know, the problem for unionism is the weakness of the Labour Party. Now, that's uh, and the bigger problem for unionism still is the weakness of the Labour Party in England, uh, not the weakness of the Labour Party in Scotland. That is to say that a Labour Party in England, I think, will is a Labour Party. A Labour Party that can win in England is a Labour Party that can win in Scotland. Um, but it has to be that way round. You know, Labour's recovery in Scotland will not come before any recovery in England. Um, and there's a further difficulty for Labour, which is that the more the Conservative Party becomes the party of England, uh, which is something that is quite clearly happening now, that, that Boris Johnson's nationalism, although it wraps itself in the Union Jack and so on, it is fundamentally an expression of a particular English form or a particular English idea of Britain and Britishness. Um, so it is, in effect, really an English nationalism. Uh, the, the, if that squeezes Labour in England then the obvious counterbalance to that in Scotland is not the Labour Party. It's the SNP, which stands up for Scotland, which is, if you like, the political articulation of a distinct Scottish sensibility. And that has been the SNP's uh, uh, brilliant piece of positioning. It's been to persuade uh, people in Scotland that a vote for the SNP 
uh, is the only way to, if you like, guarantee, protect Scotland's voice, both within the union and one day outside the union. And so to that extent as well, actually, ironically, you know, uh, the SNP is the inheritor of a unionist tradition in which secretaries of state for Scotland in the pre-devolution era understood themselves to be Scotland's man in the cabinet for the most part, just as much as they were the cabinet's man in Scotland. Um, and so the SNP is actually, if you like, taken on that in, that inheritance from unionism, uh, albeit obviously with a very different destination in mind. I, I had to double check you wrote for The Spectator when you said that the fate of Scotland depended on the Scottish Labour Party. Um, before... well, look, well, look, yeah, I mean, it's quite, it's, it, from a unionist point of view, it is absolutely obvious that uh, a Labour victory in the next general election would be preferable to another Conservative victory. Um, because, you know, it, you know, although Labour, you, you know, you have a quarter, roughly a quarter of people in Scotland will vote Conservative, but for the other three quarters, a Conservative government at Westminster is their least favoured option. Whereas a Labour government at Westminster, okay, people in the SNP wouldn't necessarily like it, but a Labour government is going to be everybody's second choice, if you like, um, as well as obviously being the first choice for, for, for Labour supporters. And so to that extent, is much less offensive to, to Scottish sentiment than a Conservative government, let alone a Conservative government led by somebody like Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson is a problem. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see how much of the drive for independence is, is, is run by kind of anti-Torism in a sense that the ship has been captured by the Conservatives and will be captured for another decade and therefore we need to, to leave the ship. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, at the, at the, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's been has more or less admitted this that in the last couple of years, that to the extent the case for independence has been strengthened, it has been strengthened by events in London, not by anything she or any other Scottish nationalist has said in Edinburgh or Glasgow. Um, so it is a reactive movement just as much as it is a proactive one. Um, now, at some point, as as I think Ben and I both agree, the SNP are going to actually have to say something about well, what would the practical aspects of independence look like? But at the moment, they don't have to because, uh, you know, they, they, they need only ask people in Scotland to peer south of the border and say, do you really want to have a lot more of this? Um, and people sort of say, well, no, I'm not sure I do. Um, unless, uh, Ben, you've got any comments um, on this. But I, I want to go look a bit forward because we've, uh, we've, we've covered a lot, of, a lot of ground, but let's kind of um, do a bit of perspective work. Right now, it seems that this issue is pretty much deadlocked with Boris Johnson not wanting to allow Nicola Sturgeon to hold a, a Indy Ref 2, as it is called, a second referendum. Um, this creates a lot of tension because nothing can really happen otherwise. Can this deadlock last forever? Or would there be events that would force Boris Johnson to change his mind and allow Sturgeon to go ahead? Um, ben? Yeah, it certainly seems very difficult to imagine what those events <laughs> might be because just from the, the perspective of sheer political self-interest, it, it just looks like from Boris Johnson's perspective, there's no reason at all why he would agree to hold a referendum that he has a chance of losing. And from from the reporting around this, it's, it seems like, you know, one of the things that, that, that strikes him very uh, strongly is that this is what happened to David Cameron when David Cameron called a referendum on Europe and then had to resign as Prime Minister because he lost it. And Boris Johnson would presumably be in the same position if he if he lost a Scottish independence referendum. So for that, from, for that reason, it's very, very hard to see why he would agree to it. I mean, there's going to be a lot of pressure exerted, I guess, from the, from the Scottish government. And 
to me, it seems clear that there, there, there is definitely a, a case for another Scottish independence referendum, just in the sense that following the precedent of the, the previous one, the, the, the SNP and the, the Scottish Greens did, did win a, 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 together a majority of seats in the Scottish Parliament on, on manifestos of having another referendum. And so from that point of view, there is that democratic case for doing it. But the real politique seems to, seems to cut against it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, Alex will know more about this because he, he, you know, he's speaking to the people who are involved in these, in these decisions, but it just looks like there's a very, very little chance of it, of it happening soon. Uh, there's absolutely no chance of it happening soon. <laughs> uh, and everybody knows this. So it's a phony war uh, in many respects um but the you know the 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 thing that would change it um would be if the people of scotland wanted a referendum um you know i think we have to accept that the democratic the political argument for a referendum is quite strong you know but at the same time the argument against it is also quite strong um you know it remains the case that despite brexit it is only seven years um since uh, the matter was put to the people and a result was returned not a not a, a sufficiently decisive result obviously but nevertheless a clear result um and so you have to have a good reason to reopen it. Um, and the precedent that existed uh, that allowed the 2014 um, referendum to take place was a general and widespread acceptance that it was reasonable to have a referendum. Now, that consensus, for a number of reasons, simply does not exist at present. So it is not Boris Johnson blocking a referendum just now. It is the people of Scotland vote blocking a referendum because all the opinion polling is absolutely clear that only around one in four voters want a referendum in the next two years, which is notionally the SNP's time, time, time frame for this, although nobody in the SNP really believes it's possible or likely or even necessarily desirable. Um, and only around 40 percent of, of, of voters to 45 percent want a referendum in the next five years. Um, so, you know, what would change the dynamic of the situation would be if you had a situation where 60, 70 percent of people in Scotland made it clear they wanted a referendum, it would be very difficult to oppose such a demand, I think. But uh, if you were to reach that situation, um, a referendum would be a very different type of contest because I suspect it would be one to confirm a view that had already been reached in private, i.e. it would be to confirm that Scotland wanted to be independent rather than to decide if Scotland wanted to be independent, if that makes sense. Um, uh, and actually, I think that is in the longer term interests of the nationalist movement too, because it is quite obvious, again, Brexit provides a cautionary example here, that if you are to, to win a referendum on independence, it is much, much better to win, say, 60-40 than 52-48 uh, to, to pick a pair of random numbers. Um, uh, uh, and so to that extent, the long game uh, presumably, quite probably, favours independence. Uh, and that leaves unionism in a, in a place where it has to keep holding on, holding tight, holding fast, uh, trusting that something will turn up to shift matters in, in a unionist direction, trusting that this is just a nationalist storm that will one day blow itself out and then we can return to calmer, uh, more peaceful times. At the moment, that seems a fairly forlorn hope, but it is um, testament, I think, to the difficulties in which unionism finds itself at present that, that it may be the best unionism can hope for just now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very interesting because I think that is the sort of bind, isn't it, that, that, that unionism have got is that what you know one possible scenario is that we're, that there is a kind of 
historic generational change taking place in the Scottish electorate and, and younger younger voters are more friendly to independence. So the longer you leave it for another referendum, the the tougher it gets to win it. We, that may be the case. We also, as Alex says, the other scenario is maybe it will it will fade away. It will turn out not to be a kind of historic juncture point, but we don't know. And so the calculation for people on the pro union side about when would be best to have a referendum is is a really is a really tricky one because it might be going earlier might be might be better in terms of winning it. But but it but it's also but the 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 the, the cost of defeat is too great to allow that risk to be taken. I mean, you know, from time to time, you will have uh, people in London and so on who will make this suggestion, but there is nobody within Scottish unionism, whether that's in the Conservative Party, the Liberals or the Labour Party that I've spoken to who has the remotest in, uh, <laughs> hint of enthusiasm for such a venture, because uh, again, you know, the risk reward ratio is all out of whack. Um, uh, and so you know, uh, that leaves us in this situation where, if you like, the settled will of the Scottish people is to remain profoundly unsettled. So before we go, a quick fire question. Let's say we are in 2035. That sounds roughly right. Um, there is another referendum. Who would win? Ben, quick fire. Uh, don't don't know. Very very hard to call from from where we are now. Unfortunately, as a historian, I don't I don't have to predict the the, the future. But I I think it is genuinely very very uncertain. And I suppose that that tells you something about how things have changed in in recent years. The fact there is that level of uncertainty about about who would win the referendum. As I say as I said before, I think it it partly depends on how we read what what the trends are in Scottish society. You know, we we may be at a kind of historic juncture point where there is this generational change happening. We we may not. It may be that other issues come up and 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 kind of move to the centre and move move the, the debate away from Scottish independence. But certainly at the moment, it, it, the the kind of momentum seems to be with the pro independence side. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you say twenty thirty five, I would say that you know, yes, Scotland would vote for independence at that time if given the opportunity to do so. But here again, another uh, irony for you. I think it is easier to win a referendum on independence than it is to get a referendum on independence. Um, uh, and the conditions for getting that referendum have not yet been met, and there is no prospect of them being met in this parliament. Perhaps things will change uh, in, in a few years' time, but at the moment, uh, you know, we, we are in this sort of sense of equilibrium where, where both sides are actually evenly matched and neither can be certain of victory. And so it's like that, um, you know, uh, that thing from the 1980s movie War Games, uh, where the moral of the of the story is that the only way to win uh, the game is to refuse to play the game. Wow, fantastic! That's a great way to conclude this episode. Thank you so much for this lovely and lively conversation on Scotland. I think we covered a lot of ground from the Act of the, of the Union in 1707 to the first part of post system to the Scotland Act of 1998, and the 2014 referendum, and 2016 referendum. We we're so glad. To, I was so glad to have both of you on the show, and uh, thank you so much for coming. And uh, see you next week. So, Ben Massey and Alex Jackson around. What did you think of this episode, Francois? Um, I thought it was really interesting that both of them, at the end, thought that in our lifetimes, we would see a independent Scotland emerge from the ashes of history. So I thought that was a really interesting point that both of them made, despite the fact that, obviously, Alex is pretty much opposed to this um, uh, independent Scotland and, and Jackson is a bit more um, uh, favourable to it. But one thing which is really interesting, kind of more politically, is what do unionist-minded voters 
in England especially, do to keep the union together? Because on the one hand, what I think is really interesting about even Alex, you know, Alex who's writes for Spectator, um, in the kind of right-wing media environment, even Alex acknowledges that um, the Conservative Party, the Tories, have become the best selling point for the Scottish National Party, who in a country that is, you know, Scotland, which is very much left-leaning, there's a sense that they are on a ship that will be um, uh, captained by the Tories for at least, you know, another five to ten years. And it's, already been, it's already been ten years of that. And there's, a, there's a sense that they're in a ship in which they have no control. So therefore, the obvious solution would be, okay, well, if I'm a unionist-minded voter, I would want Labour to do, to do well. The issue, though, is given the kind of electoral map as it is nowadays, it's very unlikely that Labour would ever be in a position to have a majority without Scottish support, from, well, at least from, from the SNP. Um, what that means is if Labour makes an alliance with the SNP, the SNP is most likely going to demand a referendum out of this. So unionist, minders, unionist voters are definitely in a bind of this, and I think it's a really uh, tough dilemma and one I don't really see any solving in the short term. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, not having sort of followed uh, the Scottish uh, case that closely, although I, I think we were both, or at least I, I was in the UK, I remember when uh, the Scots voted on uh, the referendum where, where um, the Remain side narrowly won. Um, I, I, it just, I, I see a whole lot of parallels in, in the intervening, uh, what, what's, what's it been, five years since? I mean, this was back in 2015. The referendums more like six years, and I, I see a lot of parallels with uh, the Catalan situation, where uh, just like you've said, the center right uh, at the national level in Spain has uh, been warming up to the case of Catalan uh, regionalism, if only for uh, the um, the purpose of sort of you know accommodating some of their uh, some of their softer demands, among which uh, you have the uh, the amnesty that was just uh, meted out to, uh, uh, to to the organizers of an, of an uh, referendum that, that illegally took, took place in Catalonia in 2017. So I think you've got uh, a similar sort of a setup where uh, a party, a national party in government, in Spain's case, this happens to be the central left. But as you said, the central left is, uh, even though they're a party, they're national in scope, and they're not, uh, they're not necessarily, they, they don't favor independence, even though at the regional level in Catalonia, they tend to uh, build coalitions with the independent, pro-independence parties. But uh, the national government has uh, quite recently in fact, this was just uh, over the past month, uh, come out and, uh, and, and propose that uh, some of the organizers of, of the illegal referendum I was mentioning be, be given pardons uh, as a way to sort of build, build bridges and, and begin kind of a, a reconciliation uh, process where, uh, you know, we can sort of um, swipe uh, the illegality of the referendum under the rug and, and, uh, for the sake of coming uh, around some sort of a, a, agreement. But as you said, I think and as, as you were quoting Alex as saying, uh, I, I think that a lot of the tectonics for these kinds of uh, regionalist and pro-independence movements are, are already uh, set in stone. And wh whether you like it or not, the, the, the direction of travel for, for, I think, the majority of Scots is to grow disaffected with uh, politics in the union. Uh, after Brexit, I think you're going to see increasingly the pro-independence side of, of Scottish society grow increasingly resentful of um, of the Tories in Westminster. And, and um, and so I, I I can hardly see how uh, how we uh, we um, we resolve this issue uh, given given that Scotland has already already enjoys a great deal of devolution and on the and, and the the interesting thing that I think we we scarcely covered in the episode is that 
conversely, you're seeing a lot of pushback in England for for devolution. I mean, a lot of sort of uh, a lot of people, a lot of people in England uh, demand that just like you know the, the three the uh, among the four constituent nations, England actually happens to be the, the one that has the least autonomy. So, thought that aspect was was interesting, and we didn't, we didn't necessarily cover it at length. Yeah, absolutely. England does not have its own parliament, and so you have um, the parliament and Westminster deciding for for England as well as for the Union, which means that you know Scottish MPs and Welsh MPs get to decide on English matters, and that's been progressively um, turnable position. Um, but to come back to the um, comparison with Catalonia, I think it is really interesting this kind of de facto alliance that exists between the European idea and the original idea. Um, in many ways, it's like a, we're returning to medieval Europe with kind of this larger concept of Christendom and a Europe which was less built around nation states and more around kind of regional powers. And I think in many ways, it, it kind of um, follows that model. And even when you look at how functionally how the EU functions, um, a lot of the money the EU distributes around goes to your regions directly. It doesn't go through the nation state. It goes to, to the, you know, a lot, a lot of the funds go... Uh, there's, a, there's a federal fund for regions, uh, which is very important. And it not only is a kind of practical matter, it's also kind of ideologically, it's quite convenient for the partisans of Catalan independence or Scottish independence to say, first of all, we are not little Englanders like, like the English. We actually want to belong to a large organization. So we are not isolating ourselves. We're actually opening ourselves to um, to the world. And in addition, it allows, um, I think that's something we, we, we will be covering next week on an episode, but there is something quite fashionable about saying, you know, we are pro-European because it's like it's like having a, a sense of, of identity without having the risk of being seen as, you know, uh, chauvinistic or close-minded. Someone who's pro-European is not chauvinistic by kind of, uh, kind of understanding we have pro-European. So in many ways, uh, the existence of, of Europe has been uh, in the end, a very strong case for further regional um, devolution in the case of Scotland, Catalonia, even maybe independence. Yeah, and I think this this puts a lot of these uh, national governments in places like the UK and Spain on the back foot. I mean, you've got uh, obviously, you know, as a as a matter of sort of constitutional uh, basics, uh, whatever government rises to power in either of these countries is going to. Uh, you know, staunchly um, rally around uh, the integrity of the territory and the integrity of the state, right? And secession from that state uh, uh, runs afoul of, of the constitution, which, uh, you know, um, prescribes that uh, the, the, uh, the nation should uh, remain one. And uh, what, you, what you see is that, um, you know, this, this really played out uh, quite prominently when it, when it came to the, to, to the illegal referendum in Catalonia, where these pro-independence parties, which, which actually spanned the political spectrum. You had the, the kind of the leaders of, in the coalition were sort of the bourgeois center-right uh, Christian Democratic parties, uh, the uh, few, as they're called. Uh, but you also had uh, the sort of the, the moderate center-left, uh, some parties of the, the, the center, well, the, the, the sort of the, the progressive left, uh, the pro-independence progressive left, this, this party is called Esquerra. Uh, and, and they rallied around and they've got a coalition, which is a governing coalition. They've uh, run the regional government for, for many years in the running. And, and they, their campaign, as you just explained, their, their messaging is inherently pro-European. In fact, 
precisely because they want to be an independent member state, uh, member state of the EU, they, they label uh, the, na the, the national government as a sort of backward, uh, you know, uh, as this backward uh, 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 counterweight to, to Catalan dynamism, right? Catalonia is this dynamic region which is being uh, trampled upon by an inefficient, overly, overly, uh, uh, overly bureaucratic uh, central administration. Right, so as you said, I mean, it, it just it, it happens to be the case that both in, in Scotland and in Catalonia, and I think across most of these regional uh, movements, uh, the case for regional independence is is tied up with this larger argument for a Europe of the regions. And as you said, Europe already disperses a lot of money. They even have a Parliament of Regions, right? The Committee of Regions. So within within the whole European um, institutional architecture, regions have always have always played a major role. And I think the the pro-independence uh, leadership in, in all of these regions is, is very um, uh, sagely uh, played uh, with uh, some of the resources, the money that comes from Europe. They've also lobbied heavily the EU. They even have embassies. I mean, Catalonia has embassies, not not just in Brussels, but worldwide. You would be you would be surprised. I mean, these people have been uh, very very sagely and, and wisely kind of building up a whole uh, messaging and a whole campaign. Uh, for, uh, you know, in, in the case they do uh, someday become independent. Yeah, and to come back to the Spanish-English-Catalan-Scottish comparison, I think the very reason we will never see Scotland in the EU, or at least not in the short term, is because the Spanish would ferociously oppose it. Um, but to conclude, thank you um, so much to Alex and Ben. Thank you, Jorge, as well. Uh, this is our penultimate episode. We have another fantastic one coming next week, so stay tuned. If you're still with us at this point, well, maybe it's time to consider to show, show your love for us and, you know, share the show with a friend, write a review and all the rest, of course. Uh, but again, no, we don't have any gun cut ads, any stupid stuff like that. So, you know, if you want to show the support, do the simple things. They really help a lot. And uh, again, see you next week. And in addition to reviewing positively the podcast, I would greatly encourage anyone, any and all of our listeners to warmly wish Francois a happy birthday. This was uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, so uh, happy birthday. Thank you, Jorge. Yes, it was. It was 12th of July. Um, it's pretty much a French national. Um, it's pretty much Bastille Day. I was two, day, two days off Bastille Day. My, my dream would have been born, would have been to be born on 14th of July. So I would be the ultimate French patriot. Two, um, two momentous, thanks, thanks, Jorge. Exactly. Two momentous days yeah. for French nationhood. François's birthday. In exactly. I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so one day when you look up on Wikipedia for... for 12th of July is more important than 14th of July. Anyways, um, thank you so much to all of you and uh, see you next week. See you next week.